You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hello, Max. Hello, Aaron. Always a joy to uh, hang out five minutes a week introducing this podcast. <laughs> Who is on the show this week? You guys want to hang out more? We can hang out more. No, nah, I'm, I'm down. Is, this is this is just right. This is just well, just right. That might be the quickest Evan <laughs> that Aaron has put us down in an intro. That might be the record. Evan, who'd you talk to? For this week's show, I talked to Kashmir Hill, who is a reporter at the New York Times currently. Uh, you're both no doubt very familiar with her work over the years, particularly back when she was at Gizmodo and even before that at Forbes. She did these amazing stories where she immersed herself in a kind of dystopian technology situation. She famously tried to live without any sort of major tech services for a period. She tried to live on Bitcoin back in like 2012, 2013, which was a tough thing to do at the time. But at the New York Times, in addition to those kinds of stories, she broke the story of this facial recognition company called Clearview AI. She's done a bunch of stories on it for the Times. She's now written a book on it called Your Face Belongs to Us, which dives into the incredible cast of characters behind this company. So I wanted to talk to her about all those old stories and also how she got this one. And we did it at the New York Times in a studio which was quite a treat. I have to say, uh, there's a nostalgia to the Cashmere Hill byline for me, because there was a period of my life, like when my brain would go into a halting pattern where I would just start typing Gizmodo kind of as like a self-comforting yeah. thing. It was probably my first autocomplete, I think, on the on the bar during like my most peak internet addiction. So um, I've, I, it's possible I read like almost every Cashmere Hell article, including like the roundup-y, like these new earbuds are great kind of articles. I still sometimes just reflexively, when I'm bored, start typing Deadspin in, into a URL bar. And then I'm like, I don't, I don't look at this new Deadspin. I don't <laughs> look, at, <laughs> look at that 2008 Deadspin. <laughs> I just want to say, that it's sad. We've been doing this show for many, many, many years. One of my great enduring sadnesses is that like a lot of those websites from peak internet, not only are not currently publishing, but do not like even have that those eras online. So 
I just want I just want to I want to pour out a little uh, uh, internet wine for uh, for the for the dead websites out there. While we're here, Aaron, are there any other of your enduring sadnesses that you want to tell us about? I'll I'll say if my uh, I, we could make this a weekly bit. Aaron's enduring, enduring sadness, sadness of the week. <laughs> I'll think uh, I definitely have some other ones to bring up, but I don't want to put off this interview for too long. Uh, we are brought to you by a website that you can go to at vox.com. We uh, make the show with them and we thank them for the partnership. Here is Evan with Cashmere Hill. Kashmir, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks for having me. I feel like I've wanted to have you on the show for a really long time. I'm just, I'm a huge fan of your reporting and your writing, and I have been for a really long time, which we'll talk about. We've covered some of the same things over the years. Yes. I think you've you've written the most stories that I'm jealous of, of any reporter that I know. Oh, so thank you. Vanish, um, well, your Vanish was one of the first pieces I kind of encountered in my early journalism career where I was like, ooh, this is an amazing first-person story that I want to do, oh, something like this. I love yes. that. So that's, that's <laughs> nice to hear because I love that m- mode uh, that you get in when you put yourself in the middle of the stories. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the book. I want to start with how the tip came to you and where you were and what the situation was when you found out first about this facial recognition company. Yes. So I got this tip in the fall of 2019. I was in Switzerland uh, on my fellowship program. I was in my hotel room. Uh, I was seven months pregnant and it was around midnight. So everyone else I was with is out partying and I was going to bed. <laughs> and I open up my email and I have a message from a guy named Freddie Martinez, who's a public records researcher. And he said that he had come across a company that he'd never heard of before called Clearview AI that claimed it had scraped billions of photos from social media sites and the public web to build a facial recognition app that worked incredibly well. And I just remember him saying in the message, you know, they've crossed the Rubicon on facial recognition technology, and I don't think anybody knows about it. And I called him right away uh, since it was a decent hour in the States. Uh And I said, I am very interested. I'm in Switzerland right now, but I really want to chase this down. And what caused you to want to call him right away? Like, what was it about this that you knew, like, this this is something I want to get on immediately? Well, I'd been covering privacy and technology for a decade, and I immediately flashed to this conference I had gone to 10 years earlier at the Federal Trade Commission, where it was all the big tech companies like Google and Facebook and these little startups, one called SceneTap that was putting uh, cameras in bars to allow you to look and find out what the ratio of men to women were and the the age of the people at the bar, et cetera. But they had all been there to discuss what to do about facial recognition technology because it was just starting to get good enough to deploy in products. And, you know, there's a lot of debate between the tech companies about what they should be doing and the government, what, what they wanted the tech companies to be doing. But the one thing that everybody agreed on was that nobody should go and build an app that could identify anybody, that could identify a stranger. They said, okay, this is the one thing we shouldn't do with the technology. And now I'm looking at this email that's telling me that it happened and it's been done by a company 
I've never heard of before. And when I look them up online, there's very little about them. And I just I, I just knew in my bones this was a huge deal if it was true. And did you know this guy that sent you the tip? Had you had any previous relationship with him as a source? or Yeah, Freddie Martinez was a person I had met before kind of in security and privacy circles. He had actually done some journalism work, and I, I, I just I knew who he was, and I knew that this was likely to be a promising tip. And he also included the documents that he had gotten from the Atlanta Police Department, and it included this legal memo that said privileged and confidential at the top of it. It was written by Paul Clement, whose name I immediately recognized. He's a former top attorney for the United States under George W. Bush and uh, just a big deal, expensive lawyer to hire now in private practice. And he was saying in the memo, they've built this tool. It works. And he was, it seemed to be that the audience was police departments. And he was explaining to them why this tool was not illegal that it didn't break the law and they were allowed to use it. And I just, it, it, it really was, it was, it was stunning. When you're preemptively writing the memo that says, this does not break the law, I, I assure you, <laughs> there's obviously a question has arisen already, even internally, yes. about the nature of the technology. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the tip first and then go backwards because I feel like a lot of people might think, oh, you work at the New York Times, you get tips all the time, which I'm sure is true. People randomly send tips to people at the New York Times. But I feel like this kind of tip is actually the product of many years of work. So let's go all the way back before you said 10 years before you'd been at a facial recognition conference. But go all the way back to what sort of prompted your initial interest to get into reporting about technology and privacy and kind of the the uh, intersection of those. Yeah, I mean, part of it was that I became a journalist a little later in life. Um, I had kind of, I, I wasn't interested in journalism as a young person beyond reading it. And I you know, graduated from college, didn't know what I was going to do with my life, went to work for a law firm for a little while as a paralegal in mm. D.C., a big uh, corporate firm called Covington and & Burling. And while I was there, started getting interested in journalism because I was assigned to work on this case involving Tyco, which was this, oh, yeah. it was like a big white collar crime trial that was happening at the time. And I was sent to the trial to take notes to figure out what was coming out that was going to be damaging for shareholders who Covington was representing. And what I was doing was was pretty granular and not as interesting to me as what the journalists were doing in the courtroom. I was writing about, like, you know, backdated stock options, and they were writing about the $6,000 shower curtain that the CEO Wasn't had there bought. there a party he, the, in this Yes, Dennis Kozlowski, the CEO, had uh, thrown a shareholders meeting in Sardinia that happened to be at the same time as his wife's birthday, uh, and I think her friends were invited. So there were just all these juicy details that were coming out, and the journalists were getting to write it up in a really fun way, where I was writing these legal memos that were not as, as fun to right. And I thought, oh, I want to be a journalist. And so had no experience. I ended up working at a nonprofit for a while and finally kind of got my big break because I was friends in D.C. with David Latt, who was kind of one of the famous early bloggers. Mm -hmm. And he started a website called Above the Law. 
and he was running it on his own. We are friends. One Friday, I think he had a doctor's appointment and needed someone to take over the blog. Knew I was interested in journalism. So I started writing for Above Law that day and kept going. And, you know, this was kind of like gawker for lawyers. Mm -hmm. We are writing about law school students and lawyers and judges and just people that wouldn't usually be subject to coverage by a news organization. And so I found myself thinking a lot about how you invade people's privacy as a journalist, how much information I would find out about these people. I would go to Facebook and just, you know, if they're involved in some kind of criminal activity. I remember there was somebody who burned down a September 11th memorial. And when I went to his Facebook page, he'd kind of documented his whole night of drinking that led to that. And I was just struck by how much we were writing about ourselves online and how I could find it. And then I was a bit, there was kind of, um, it was during that time on the internet when bloggers were kind of people of interest. And so the readers of Above the Law would find out things about me. They, like, found the old MySpace, you know, profile that I'd forgotten about. They discovered my OkCupid dating profile and had links to it in the blog. And so I I just started really thinking about what does the Internet mean for our privacy and was writing initially about the intersection of the law and privacy and kind of backed into getting to know a lot about technology because it was dictating so much of how kind of notions of privacy were changing. And did you come from a perspective of uh, finding that creepy, finding it dangerous at the time? Or was it more, because I remember that time, I mean, when it first started to feel like things were turning a little bit and people started to look at the dangers, there was, it was very easy to dismiss it then. People were very dismissive of the idea that online privacy was important. I mean, Wired had been writing about it for years, but I feel like it wasn't taken as seriously. But did you latch onto it as like, I'm actually worried about this for myself or more just like this is an interesting area to explore that people aren't looking at? I latched onto it as it was interesting to explore. And I was skeptical in a way of how much privacy mattered. I started a blog called The Not-So-Private Parts, and I would say my my views have actually changed a lot since then. Mm. Um, I've, I've learned a lot <laughs> over the last decade. But but I, I just felt like a lot of people were talking about kind of data collection, you know, how there are all these apps on your phones that are collecting your location and gathering information about you for targeted ads, but I just wasn't seeing the harms. And so what I really wanted to focus on was when is it harmful? When is somebody really hurt by this versus the benefits that we get from from kind of being able to access all this information? Uh, having, I remember the famous example back then of how beneficial this could be was the Google flu report where they oh, yeah. could tell based on what people were searching, like how the flu is moving through society. Though I think that, that since there's been uh, doubt raised about <laughs> actually how scientific that was. I wrote about that, that at the time. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, that was my perspective. I was kind of, uh, I was skeptical and I was just trying to point to, well, here's where people are really actually getting hurt by the use of their information in these unexpected ways. It's getting collected. Mm-hmm. And then you you kind of went on to do this series of stories over different publications. Um, the first one I remember of yours was I lived on Bitcoin for a week, which was the first one I distinctly remember being like, that's a, that's a really good fucking idea right there. Like... <laughs> 
I should have thought of that. You know, like it's always when you see something like that, you're like, why didn't I think of that? How did that start for you? Like that idea that you would sort of put yourself in as the guinea pig or at least immersive reporter? It actually came from journalism school. Uh, yeah. yeah, I ended up after I started blogging for Above the Law, I went and did a magazine journalism program at NYU. And um, I studied with a professor named Ted Conover, who's kind of a master of the craft, and took this class where we were supposed to develop a beat, develop a niche. And that's where I chose privacy. And so I actually developed this not-so-private parts beat in journalism school and was studying with Ted Conover, um, Robert Boynton, and they had us really study first-person journalism and think about how to write that story, how to write it in a compelling way where it's not just your journal. You're just using yourself as a vehicle for digging deeper into a topic. So, yeah, I'm one of the few people, I think, who can really solidly say I'm so glad I went to journalism school. It really paid off. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you're going to learn about Immersion journalism, yeah. it's good to learn it from the guy who I think he literally wrote a book called Immersion Journalism, Ted Conover. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that's where it started. And and yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the Bitcoin series because I have heard from a few other journalists who said, I kind of was thinking about doing that and I bought Bitcoin, but then you did it. So then I kept the Bitcoin and I'm so glad because it was worth so much more later. No way. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was it was like it was 100 bucks or something. It was worth back then. It was worth $90 when I was living on Bitcoin the first time. And during that week that I was living on it, I mean, it was hard. I like lost weight because it was hard to find food I could buy with Bitcoin. I had to move out of my apartment briefly because my landlord didn't want to accept Bitcoin as my rent. But I uh, wound up taking a bunch of people out for a big sushi dinner at like this one restaurant that accepted it. And the sushi dinner was something like 10 Bitcoin which it's fluctuated in price around the time. At that time, you know, it was like $900, $1,000. And since then, I think that dinner has been valued at something like $600,000. So sometimes my husband is like, why didn't you just keep all the Bitcoin? Now, when you do these type of stories, you mentioned like having trouble paying your rent. And then a couple of other ones from that era or a little bit later that I remember are the really famous one where you stopped using the big technology companies' products or tried to stop using all flavors of their products. And then uh, where you set up your apartment as an entire, like, surveillance. Everything was online, so it was basically like a surveillance apartment. Are those stories, are they better if something goes wrong, you know, like not being able to pay your rent? Like, how do you sort of find the way to tell the story through that methodology? Yeah, I mean, I I think that you... When you're doing this, I like immersion journalism is the nice, you know, the nice term for it. It's also stunt journalism. It always makes me so mad when people said stunt journalism. <laughs> I don't mind. I mean, it is a stunt. It is something you have to really lean into. Like, I think you can't kind of half do it. You have to think about what's the most extreme version I can do of this because you want it to be really interesting. And so, you know, if you're going to live on Bitcoin but still, you know, pay your rent in dollars, it just isn't as challenging and you're not going to have those pain points that that give the the narrative some texture and flavor. So I, I don't look for things to go wrong, but they often do because the future is so broken, you know. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I will definitely seize on those moments. But yeah, it's so often. I remember living when I turned my 
San Francisco apartment into a smart home and uh, was working with a technologist, Surya Matu, to monitor all the data going in and out. And so he built this special VPN so we could see it. But I think the appeal of a smart home and smart devices is it's supposed to make your life so much more convenient. But I was just so frustrated all the time. So it wasn't just about the loss of privacy and all the data that was flowing out of this house, but it was just like so hard to turn on the lights. And I had this smart coffee machine that was that I thought I could just like tell Alexa in the morning like make the coffee for me but it was this complicated prompt I had to give it and every morning when I woke up without caffeine I forgot how to say it and so I would be telling Alexa over and over like tell the be more to set the 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 brewing I can't remember now <laughs> and my husband would be like can I please just get up and walk to the kitchen and just press the button for us and I'm be like no I have to do it the smart way so I do fully immerse myself when I immerse myself to try to to try to get the most out of the experience and do you sort of start with a thesis that you're trying to to provide the reporting for like I'm thinking of the the one where you gave up, you know, Google, Apple and all these services, Microsoft, which was the easiest one, if I recall. And I wondered if to what extent you said, I'm going to show how hard this is, as opposed to maybe this won't be that hard. I'm a, like an open ended question versus a kind of like directed question. Yeah. With the getting away from the tech giants, part of it was it was a follow up on the smart home story. And I was kind of wanting to get away from technology because it had been such a frustrating experience. But the genesis of that one is that writing about kind of the harms of technology and especially of free products that offer so many benefits like Facebook, like Google, I would often see people react to the story by saying, hey, if it's, you know, if it's, if it's this harmful to your privacy, if it's this intrusive, just don't use the product. And so my my real question there was just, is that really possible? And And I knew from all my reporting how kind of deep the tendrils go, that it's not just deleting your Gmail account. It's that you're going to encounter Google all over the web in places that you don't expect. And mm-hmm. so going into it, I knew it would it would be hard. And probably, you know, if I come up with a stunt and it's not hard um, or it's not interesting, then I don't tend to write that story. And I can't think of that happening off the top of my head, but I, I definitely know that it has happened where I did a stunt and I was like, well, I just don't think there's enough here to really write about this. Mm. And as you mentioned, your husband, I mean, as time goes on, other people enter your life, like husband, children, and these immersive journalism experiences come to involve them. So what does that look like for you? Uh, You've done even one at the times that really featured your husband where you were tracking him everywhere. (laughs) And so I'm interested in how you, is it sort of like a known thing in your family now? And you're like, actually, I've got, I got a new one. Here we go. (laughs) Um, I do try to get yeah, my, my husband was my boyfriend when I did the Bitcoin story. Uh, and he he's also kind of journalism adjacent. So luckily, he's supportive of the cause. But yes, when we did the smart home story, I, I, I can't remember if we were married by then. But yeah, I was like, are you willing to <laughs> give up um, basically all these products in the home? And will you do it with me? He said, I'm not going to do it with you because I have a job and that would be impossible. Um, but sure, like you can put our, you know, the, our Alexa Echo away for a while and I will uh, not watch like the streaming giants. Um, 
But yes, the most recent one I definitely had to get his go-ahead for because I was basically stalking him. Um, There had been all these reports about how the new Apple AirTag was introduced by Apple to, you know, track your keys, track your wallet, track your bag. But people were finding it, you know, hidden behind the license plate of their car, finding it dropped in their coat pocket, in their purses. And people were very alarmed that it was making it too easy to track them. And so I'd written about that for the Times. And I wanted to basically see what it was like for a person who was tracking and being tracked and how easy it would be for them to realize that the technology was there. And so mm-hmm. I did ask him, hey, would you be okay with me tracking your location? I didn't want to give him too many details because part of the challenge was, would he be aware of it? And he said, yeah. yes, but like you can't you can't put like bugs or tracking onto my phone or my computer activity. And I said, no, I'm just interested in your <laughs> in your location. I will only use physical trackers. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's in your vows. You but, can't put yes. <laughs> actual bugs on the phone. Uh, but yes, I'm lucky. And I ha- I do have, I remember when I did the smart home story, my first daughter was pretty young. She was a toddler and she was so frustrated because she couldn't watch Coco in Monsters, Inc., which were her favorite movies at the time, because you couldn't access those kinds of movies without the intervention of the tech giants. (laughs) Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. When you came to the New York Times, so you'd worked at Gizmodo and Forbes and... Fusion, were you on staff? Fusion. Fusion? Yeah, I was. I don't know. Fusion hasn't come up in a long time. <laughs> I've thought about Fusion in a few years. But uh, but when you came to the Times, 
the newspaper side of the Times, not traditionally known for in-depth first person. I mean, of course, it, it shows up. But was that something where they were like, this is what we want from you? Or you're saying, if you get me, this is my approach? I never, I mean, working at the New York Times is a dream, but I just didn't think it could ever be my dream because of my style of, of reporting. And I really came from a, the blogging world and did so much first person, and it wasn't something I necessarily associated with the Times. But they told me they really loved what I did, and they weren't hiring me to come write like the Times. They wanted me to do it like I've been doing it mm. and that they thought it was important work. And yeah, I, I have been loving it here. It's been four years now and it's an amazing place to work. The editor's incredible. My colleagues are incredible. And I've, I have been able to do amazing stories here. And I think that we're seeing more of it in the times now. There's been incredible first person reporting. Um, the kind of famous one now is Kevin Roos and his interaction with Sydney, uh, the evil AI um, part of Bing. But yeah, there's there's just so many great first person stories here. Andy Newman working as a gig worker and kind mm -hmm. of going all around Manhattan uh, trying to make it work. So, that's so yeah, I, it's been great. I feel like you're pioneering it here. And then like you like roping in colleagues, like your colleague that that uh, you helped like slander himself online. <laughs> <laughs> like in my head, it was you being like, "No, come on, let's do one of these stories." But how did how did it actually how did that actually come about? It, it was a little bit like that. <laughs> let's slander you. What would that look like? I was like, my my Google footprint is probably too big to destroy, but yours is a little smaller. <laughs> Yes. So, yes. So had done some reporting on online reputation and this woman who had kind of serially defamed her enemies, kind of going after them, going after their family members, their colleagues. It was a story called A Vast Web of Vengeance. And all of these horrible things she was writing online were being kind of hosted and spread by these slander sites. And in order to to really understand how they worked. It was a very murky world. It was hard to tell which who owned which sites. And so we thought the best way to do it would be to do it ourselves. <laughs> and the idea was someone needed to be slandered. And my colleague, Aaron Krolik, uh, who's a technologist here, I've worked with on a lot of stories, and he's so great. And he said, yeah, I, I will do it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Who came up with the actual, I love the actual like bit of slander, which is this man will do anything for attention, basically. <laughs> Uh, well, we because it's the New York Times, we wanted to make sure that we weren't spreading misinformation or disinformation. Mm. So Aaron basically came up with what he felt was a slander of himself that was true. <laughs> <laughs> what does it look like when you like map one of these things out to get started? So this is where I'm really thankful to work. And I've done this with a lot of my stories where I'll pair up with a technologist. Mm -hmm. And so with Surya Matu, when we did the smart home story, he built this VPN for me to monitor data flows. When I did the getting away from the technology giants, I worked with Dhruv Marotra, who's now at Wired, actually. And he built this VPN for me that would block my devices from being able to access the servers of the tech giants. And Aaron and I have worked on a couple of different stories together. And so, yeah, for this one, he came up with the system to to watermark the photos so that we could see how they spread from site to site. And what we found was that 
the sites themselves are spreading the slander around and making it worse for anybody who has these kind of horrible lies written about them online. And what we suspected was happening and turned out to be true is that the slander sites had ties to the online reputation mitigation sites. And so it was essentially blackmail where you're kind of paying the same people to get rid of the slander who are helping it spread. Yeah, that was an amazing part of the story. It's the same people. It's the same people. So in all of this privacy stuff, I mean, I feel like facial recognition was always this kind of like dystopian feel to it from a privacy perspective. But also for a very long time, and you mentioned it was 10 years before that you'd been to a conference, it was sort of like it didn't work, you know? For a long time, it just didn't work very well. And computer vision was such a backwater in terms of like successes. And so when it finally turned, had you been sort of like checking in on it over the years? Like how did you sort of follow it so that you were ready for this moment? Yeah, so I had been looking at facial recognition 10 years ago, And it was mostly at that point just a technology that was getting used to tag friends and photos. Mm -hmm. And even then, it didn't work great. It was more the, you know, when perfected, this is going to be scary kind of technology. And then a few years ago, I started getting interested in it again, actually, because of an artist slash technologist uh, named Adam Harvey, who uh, is kind of famous. He did a lot of like privacy surveillance art. He famously created CV Dazzle, which was this makeup that you could put on your face with like crazy geometric patterns that would subvert a facial recognition (laughs) algorithm by making it so the program couldn't detect your face. They quickly fixed it and CV Dazzle doesn't work anymore Mm. against facial recognition algorithms. So people still... (laughs) tout it as a solution all the oh, time. Really? So if you've, if you've heard that, don't believe it. <laughs> CV Dazzle will not protect you from facial recognition. But he had done this interesting project where he had looked at all the academic papers about facial recognition technology to see which databases they were using. So he created this website called Exposing.ai that just went through and looked at the collection of photos that everybody was relying on. And there was one from Duke that was just like students who had been walking around in campus. There's one data set called Brainwash that was from a San Francisco cafe that had just been selling the surveillance footage of people that came in. And there were kind of bigger ones. There's one that came from Flickr photos uh, that Yahoo researchers had put together. So anyways, I just was looking at it, and it was very much this culmination of something I've been writing about for a long time, which is us putting a whole bunch of information on the internet and then having it collected and used in unexpected ways. And while working on that, I realized that facial recognition had gotten better. Mm -hmm. But I didn't understand how much better it had gotten. There was still so much reporting about the flaws in the technology, particularly around bias and not working as well on people uh, with different skin tones, not working as well for, you know, women as men, black people as white people. So I still didn't realize how good it was. So when I first got this tip about Clearview AI, part of my skepticism was, I just didn't think facial recognition worked this well. And they Mm -hmm. claimed that they had something like 99% accuracy. And as I was talking to experts about it, you know, everyone was stunned. People were pretty skeptical that they had built a technology that worked. There was kind of this knowledge gap still where people, for the most part, didn't kind of realize how far the technology had come along. And so working on that story and then working on the book, of course, uh, now have a better understanding of just how advanced facial recognition has gotten, thanks mostly to, you know, neural net technology and 
computers getting more powerful and having a lot more training data to work with. So can you walk us through when you got the tip? So this, this company, no one's ever heard of this company, including experts in the field. So how did you go about trying to figure out what they were up to? So I, I did what anybody would do. I went to clearview.ai, their website. And, you know, it just had, it was a it was a pretty generic site. It had this kind of like Pac-Man-esque logo of the C chomping down on the V. And it said, artificial intelligence for a better world. And it said, you know, to get access, you know, basically put in your email address here. So I did. Uh, your and- Times address? Um, I think I did put my New York Times address in. And there was, and beyond that, all they had was an address. And it was an address in New York. And I don't think there was any contact information beyond that. But I, but when I looked and mapped it on Google Maps, it was just a few blocks away from the New York Times office. So I was like, okay, as soon as I, you know, get back to New York, I'll, I'll just basically walk over there, which I did. And it was funny because I got to the place that Google Map pointed me to and the building wasn't there. There was no, no such building. There's no such building. I kept going back and forth. I'm like, is there something I'm missing? Like, where, where is this? And there was a, it was kind of like a, like a delivery dock or something. So I went up to them. I said, where is this address? Is it like somewhere else? And they're like, oh, that, that doesn't exist. There's nothing here. There was a WeWork there. So I was like, okay, maybe they're in the WeWork. I went in, I said, have, you know, is there a clear view AI here? And they're like, no. And so <laughs> that seemed really suspicious to me. And then I tried starting, I just tried to find anything I could about them. I was, I was just kind of going through government websites. I mean, just looking for anything I could. And everyone I reached out to who was connected to Clearview AI just refused to respond. They wouldn't answer phone calls. They wouldn't answer emails. I just kept hitting dead ends. And I started to wonder if it was some kind of scam Mm. on police departments, if they're selling kind of like a magical, you know, snake oil product. But there was that legal memo from Paul Clement, which, of course, he wouldn't respond to me. (laughs) (laughs) But it seemed like, man, if you you have the money to hire Paul Clement, this must be something real. (laughs) That's a serious scam. (laughs) So I kept hitting these closed doors. And so I thought, well, you know, they're selling it to police. They claim police are buying it. Let me go find the police departments that are using it. And I think I did that just through like an advanced Google search of looking for Clearview showing up in .gov websites and just see if it's on anybody's budget. Mm. Um, and then, of course, had that FOIA from the that original Paul Clement memo had come from the Atlanta Police Department. So I started reaching out to police departments. Atlanta ignored me. Most of them ignored me, which is not surprising. I've often found that law enforcement doesn't want to talk about the surveillance tools that they're using. But then I reached out to Gainesville Police Department, and they got back to me right away. They're like, yeah, we'd love to put you in touch with the detective who uses it. Like, we're really excited about it. And this detective calls me up. His name was Nick Ferrara. And he could not have been more excited to talk about Clearview. You know, he said it works incredibly well. It works like nothing I've used before. He was a financial crimes detective. And so he had a lot of images of people who had like gone to an ATM or gone to a bank counter and committed, you know, financial fraud. He said, you know, I'd run a lot of these photos through the face recognition system that we used before here in Florida. That's mostly around mugshots. It's older technology. He said, you know, had no leads. 
And then I started running them through Clearview AI and I got hit after hit after hit and it got these cases moving. He said I'd be their spokesperson if they wanted me. Like he loved it. And I imagined in the movie version of this where everyone's in the newsroom, you like standing up and being like, (laughs) I got him. I got the guy. Well, what's funny is when I was like, you know, about to go on maternity leave, my editor had just left. So I was kind of between editors at the times. And, you know, I'm about to go. And so I think I was probably just going to float around with no editor until I left to go have my baby. And so I went to Ellen Pollack, who runs business where I work. And I said, Ellen, like, I've got a big story. I really need an editor for it. And I got paired up with incredible investigative editor here named David Enrich. And so he was very helpful because it was a challenging story to report out since Clearview itself really did not want to talk to me. And they went to pretty extreme lengths to try to discourage me from gathering information. Yeah, including you tried to do, I mean, it wasn't like a fully immersion situation like we were talking about before, but it seems like one of your initial impulses was run my photo. Like, let's see what comes up. Yeah. I was like, I want to see what one of these searches is like. And Nick Farrar was like, well, I can't give you like my um, police investigative work uh, because it would compromise my cases. But he said he was willing to run my own photo. And so I emailed him three photos and he had said it worked really well, even if somebody's looking away from the camera, if they're wearing a hat. So I sent him three photos, like I think one where I was wearing sunglasses and a hat, one where my eyes were closed and one where I was looking away from the camera. And then he just disappeared on me. And I was calling him, I was emailing him and he just stopped responding which was a little strange, and I wasn't sure what had happened because he'd been so eager to talk about the company Mm -hmm. before. Meanwhile, I found another detective to talk to, and he, like the first detective, was really excited about the tool. He said it didn't work all the time, that if somebody was an online ghost and didn't have a lot of photos online, it wasn't going to get a hit. But he said it had worked in a recent case he'd worked on of a sexual assault case where the woman had taken a photo of the guy in the bar earlier in the night, and he had just used that photo to kind of track this guy down. And he made the same offer, I'll run your photo, and I can show you what it's like. And so I sent him a photo, and he ran it, and he said, oh, there's no results for you. And I was like, oh, that's really odd. Like, I do have a lot of photos online. He said, yeah, when I Google your name, there's a lot of photos. I would expect you to have results. And he said, you know, maybe there's maybe their servers are down right now. <laughs> and then he also stopped talking to me. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until I, I ended up kind of recruiting a detective with the help of a colleague here at The Times. He went to Clearview's site, put in his email address, quickly got a response, had access to the app within a half an hour. And he ran photos of some suspects whose identity he knew. It worked. He actually ran his own photo. And he's been very careful to keep photos of himself off of the Internet because of the work he does. He doesn't want to be really trackable by maybe people who are upset about him enforcing the law on them. And so he ran this photo of himself, not expecting to get any results. Mm -hmm. And then he did get a hit. And when you run a photo through Clearview AI, it'll just show you the face and there'll be a link to where the photo appears. And you could see that it came from Twitter. 
So he clicks on the photo and it's from a pride festival that he had been patrolling. And it was somebody had taken a photo of two people who were in the foreground and he was in the background of the photo. His head was like really tiny. I could not tell. He showed me the two photos. I couldn't tell it was the same person. Oh, wow. But he was in uniform. He actually had his his tag on his uniform. So it would have led to his name. And he was really stunned by it. His first thought was of undercover police officers and how this was going to make their lives more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I told him about this experience I'd had that these two other people who'd run my photo, one of whom hadn't gotten any results. And so he ran my photo. And he said, yep, no results. And then a couple of minutes later, he gets a call from somebody uh, at Clearview AI telling them they, they, were, they were with Clearview tech support and had he just run a photo of this woman from the New York Times, Kashmir Hill. <laughs> and he was a little cagey and said, you know, how would I know somebody at the New York Times? And they said, well, you just ran our photo. Like, it violates our terms of service to run a reporter's photo, and we're going to have to de- deactivate your account. And so then I, I figured out, you know, why the other detectives had gone cold on me. It was that the company had been tracking who was submitting my photo and had blocked the results for my photo, which just gave me this peek at how much power they had to not only see who police were looking for, but controlling whether that person was findable. And it was very alarming for the police officer I was working with because he said, you know, a company shouldn't have this kind of access. They shouldn't know who police officers are looking for. Yeah. And it it also... It's just such a fascinating journalistic moment because it's like you discovering really directly this thing that you kind of assume is happening, which is, you know, you contact some company that doesn't want to talk to you. They're all talking to each other and then they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And you actually experience this kind of like they put you on a list, like a watch list to look out for you. And when you realize that was true, did that change your approach at all to the reporting, knowing that they had actually, like, excluded you from the database, knowing that you were probably doing this with police departments all around the country? I found it chilling. I also felt bad. Like, I'd exposed my sources in that way um, when I just hadn't been thinking about it, which which I kind of took to heart and, and, and just have to think about it for future reporting that I've done since then. But, yeah, I mean, I... I realized, okay, they fully know about me. They clearly still don't want me to do this story, but it only made me more eager to tell the story and to try to get them to talk to me. My real breakthrough was I looked Clearview up on um, PitchBook, which is a website that tracks startups, and they had a like really kind of skimpy entry for them, and it said that they had two investors. One was Peter Thiel, who I think if you follow technology at all, very familiar name, you know, one of the PayPal founders, made a lot of money investing in Facebook, founded Palantir, one of the the data mining juggernauts that works with governments and corporations. And so I reached out to Teal's spokesperson and um, he was like, oh, okay, what's the company? Clearview AI, let me see if we have an investment in them. Like, doesn't sound familiar to me. Then never responded to me. <laughs> Stopped returning my phone calls. And then um, the other investor was a venture capital firm called Kiranaga Partners. And they were actually based in New York, in Bronxville, just like north of Manhattan. And so I got on the train and went to their offices. 
it was very suburban, very empty office. This is pre-pandemic when people actually went to offices. Uh, but they're on this long hallway and there was just like nobody around. And I knocked on their door and called their number and nothing was happening inside the office. Talked to the neighbors and I said, oh, they never come in. They're never here. A delivery guy came by to drop off some package for them. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've never seen them. They never come into the office. So I figured it was another dead end. But I kind of like lingered in the hallway for an hour slacking. My editor, David Henrich, being like, what should I do? And finally decided to leave. And I'm coming, it's on the second floor, and I'm coming down the stairs. And these two guys walk into the lobby, and they just looked moneyed. They had that VC look. They had the VC look, like, you know, the, like, pink shirt, the lilac tie, gray suits. Uh, And I just said, hey, are you with Kiranaga Partners? And they looked up at me, and they were smiling, and they're like, yeah, we are. Uh, And I said, I'm Kashmir Hill. I'm the New York Times reporter who's been calling and emailing you. And their faces just fell. Uh, And David Scalzo um, was one of them. He's uh, the firm's founder. And he said, oh, well, Clearview's lawyer said we're not supposed to talk to you. And so I kind of, I'm wearing a coat because it's winter. I kind of open my coat to show my like very pregnant belly. And I was like, oh, I came all this way. I really wanted to talk to you. Like, do you think we just sit down? Maybe we can talk off the record. And so David Scalzo was like, okay. And he, he takes me into the office and we sit down and have some water. And, you know, he just was so clearly excited about the investment in Clearview. And I laid out for him the reporting I'd done that I talked to police officers. I was definitely going to do this story that the company's not talking to me. And it, it looked it looked really sketchy. And I said, you know, it would be good if there's somebody to talk on the company's behalf. And so he said, OK, you know, well, let's go on the record. And yes, it started telling me some wild things about how Clearview AI you know, was selling to law enforcement. It was spreading like wildfire through law enforcement agencies. You know, I'd find out that they had been used by thousands of law enforcement agencies, not just in the U.S., but around the world. He said, but that's not all they want to do. They want to sell it to everybody. You know, they want to be in hotels. They want to be in office buildings. Like, I think everyone's going to have Clearview on their phone. And it's just going to be like, instead of Googling somebody, you'll Clearview somebody. And it means you're searching their face and finding out who they are. I was like, well, that's kind of alarming. That kind of means the end of anonymity as we know it. And he said, well, this is the nature of technology. You know, there's not going to be privacy. It's advancing all the time. And it's kind of dystopian, but you can't ban it. And so um, after that, people started talking to me in Clearview, decided that it was time to talk to me because they weren't going to be stopping the story. Real credit for for, uh, lingering in the hallway. That's like... (laughs) So much information available online, and you got the story by traveling to the place and sitting there for however long. Yeah, door stuffing still works. And just getting lucky, because they really did not come into the office very often. So I just think about that, like, if I'd taken a different train, if I miss them by 10 minutes, sometimes you just get those those lucky breaks <laughs> um, as a reporter, and I got one right then. Well, I, I often ask people who, you know, take a series of stories and then expand it into a book, like, what— you know, what made you think this was a book or what point you know this was a book? You may have a different answer, but just what you've described so far, a huge, huge story. But then when you actually discover who's behind this company and the incredible constellation of bizarre characters that are involved, I feel like even reading like the first newspaper story or second newspaper, when it all kind of was like starting to come into focus, 
it felt like a book <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, is that how it felt to you? Like, how is this possibly opening up into these avenues after it's already this interesting? Yeah, it was. So, yeah. So as I find out, so I'm sitting in that office and I'm saying it with the Kiranaga investors and I'm like, well, but who built this? Like, who is the mastermind who, as far as I could tell, had made this like incredible technological breakthrough and built a database like nothing we had seen before, even from Google or Facebook or or even a government. And he said, oh, you know, he's a he's a genius. Um, I found earlier somebody that on LinkedIn who said they worked for Clearview and their name was John Good and they were listed as a sales manager and they had no connections and of course reached out to them and they didn't respond. So he's like, his name is Huanton Tat, but uh, he goes by John Good on LinkedIn because um, <laughs> because he has a little bit of Gawker history. And he had to write the name on the board for me because it was uh, unusual spelling. And so I left that interview and I'm sitting on the train Googling Huanton Tat, and the first article that came up was on Valley Wag, and it was about this hacker who had, like, a phishing scheme. And anyways, it was, it was I could understand why he didn't like his, his history. Huanton Tat had partnered up with this guy, Richard Schwartz, who was decades older than him, who had worked for Rudy Giuliani. And that's all I kind of knew initially, uh, but would find out other people connected to it. But yeah, after I did that first story, I was eight months pregnant when the story came out in the Sunday edition, and just more stuff kept coming in. I kept talking to people. I found out that, you know, trying to raise money, they had been meeting with all these investors, and part of the pitch was that they would give them access to Clearview AI. Mm -hmm. And I start finding out it's being used by, like, uh, people who work for Sequoia, which is a really big venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Ashton Kutcher had gotten the app. He talked about it in a Hot Ones video on YouTube. I found out that this billionaire in New York, John Katzmatidis, he's run for mayor. He uh, owns the Gristetes market, that he had gotten access to the app, that they tried to um, put Clearview AI in his grocery stores to catch shoplifters. So I call him up. And he starts telling me about this time that, you know, he didn't end up putting it into his supermarkets, but he had the app on his phone and how great it was because his daughter walked into a restaurant he was at once at Cipriani and uh, she had like a suitor on her arm and he wanted to know who it was. And so he had the waiter take a photo of them and then clear viewed the guy's face and found out exactly who he was and texted his daughter the guy's bio and said he approved. You know, there were just so many different lines of reporting and I was fascinated by them all and so I kept reporting even after my daughter was born I was like calling down Katz Matisse and I had my newborn like in the ergo on my chest I'm bouncing her trying to keep her calm while I'm talking to Katz Matisse and like interviewing him I just couldn't put the story down so yeah it was pretty evident to me early on that it I would say that it could be a book and my editors because I kept pitching story after story about all this. And they're like, I, you definitely have a book here. Like, you should write a book, book. proposal. Uh, we can't publish all these stories. But, you know, I, was, I just had my second child. I was pretty busy. And so it really took the pandemic uh, for me to have the time to sit down and, and write the proposal and really figure out how big it could be and how do you put this together? How do you structure this? What are the big questions I wanted to answer? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it really, it just from the very beginning, I just felt like the story was so fascinating and the characters 
were so interesting and just trying to understand their motivations and how they got here. Yeah. Well, one you haven't mentioned is this guy, Charles Johnson, who, again, like, he just has this whole internet history separate from being involved in this story, touching on white supremacy internet and certainly far-right internet and, you know, Trump and all kinds of connections. But then the thing I wanted to ask you was, I mean, he... This is a spoiler a little bit, so people should read the book. But like he ends up getting driven out of the company or cut out of the company. And clearly he was also a good source in terms of like the information he had about how the whole thing started and how it had been invented and this, that, and the other. So how did you sort of balance the idea of you've got this guy with this kind of treasure trove who also has this very checkered history, who also potentially has an ax to grind? I was just interested in how you like worked with him as a source. Yeah. So Charles Johnson is somebody I heard after the first Clearview story, I started hearing from a lot of people. Like, it was funny because Clearview AI was not known by the general public, but there were all these very powerful and rich people who knew about the app and had access to the app and had been using the app. And so after that first story came out, kind of breaking the fact of their existence, people started reaching out to me. And what I started hearing from particularly investors who had been approached, was, yeah, we heard about Clearview. We had concerns. There were ethical issues about what they had built, you know, scraping all those photos, whether they had the legal right to use them. But also they had these conservative ties that we didn't like, and particularly to this guy, Charles Johnson. And Charles Johnson was a person I had heard of before, also known as Chuck Johnson. And, yeah, had like a kind of long history as this conservative provocateur, David Carr wrote this great profile of him sowing mayhem one click at a time. <laughs> um, and so I reached out to him, and that was the start of, like, a very strange reporter source relationship because he uh, he's just a strange—how do I even put it? How do I describe him? He was one of those people who at first didn't want to talk to me and— Clearview, I didn't want to kind of acknowledge his existence, and he wanted to be recognized as an important player in the development of Clearview AI. And so he was one of those people that I had to really understand his motivation and, you know, why would he want to talk to me and why does Clearview AI so not want to be associated with him? I, it felt a little bit like the movie Rashomon, uh, the Kira Kurosawa film, where you're you're seeing the same narrative told through all these different characters. I've never felt the presence of that film so strongly as reporting on the Clearview AI story because everybody had this different narrative of exactly how Clearview AI had come together. <laughs> and when I first met Wanton Tat, he told me this version of the story where he and Richard Schwartz, I was like, how do you, how'd you meet this guy? You know, like you're this young coder, you know, from San Francisco, and he is an old-time politico who worked for Rudy Giuliani. Like, how did your paths cross? He said, oh, well, we met at the Manhattan Institute at a, a book event. And I said, oh, you know, what was the book? And he's like, I don't remember. <laughs> and so even at the time, I thought that was strange. And then Charles Johnson comes along, and he's like, actually, I'm the one who introduced Richard Schwartz and Juan Dantat. And I was like, well, you know, where are the receipts? And Charles Johnson ended up being a person who was very willing to share emails. And he had just been on all these emails with the company very early on. He clearly was part of it as it was forming and developing. And he ended up sharing that with me. And so that was very helpful in understanding the story 
because every person involved had kind of a different version of events. But having the emails, I, I ended up like doing this big spreadsheet of, you know, like when is he close to them? When is he far from them? When did they have this break? And his talking to me ended up getting him into all kinds of trouble. And clearly I kind of used his talking with me to fully boot him from the company because they yeah. said he was violating a confidentiality clause. Um, so, so yeah, anyways, it was, it was complicated <laughs> and interesting, but it was, it was very, very helpful to be able to see the emails because what they were conceiving in the beginning wasn't just a facial recognition app. It was this app that was supposed to be able to tell you much more about somebody just based on their face. They were talking about being able to you know, judge your criminality and your intelligence, your likelihood of being a cheater or a drug abuser. It was really kind of tapping into the physiognomy and uh, phrenology, these kind of yeah. discredited sciences. It's all, that, some real digital phrenology going on at yeah, the beginning. Yeah, that goes back to Aristotle and kind of Victorian scientists. And so it was really interesting to follow that thread in the in the book and then in the Clearview AI story. You've obviously written about this for so many years, and you said earlier that you were kind of, you know, looking for the danger, like where's the real danger here in terms of privacy loss from various technologies. And so now you have this, they're on the extreme, like they're doing the thing that everyone said, oh, well, no one will ever do that. Like no one will ever just release it to people to use for whatever. And they're giving it to law enforcement. But obviously there are people who think that it's powerful and it's valuable and so how did you kind of like, with your history of writing about this stuff, also try to make space for, I guess, the other side, the sort of like, why would we want this thing? Like, what what could be the possible positive benefits of it? Yeah, and I, I try to be fair in that because, uh, you know, I did talk to a lot of police officers who who really value a tool like this. Like, this, this is a powerful technology that when a crime is committed and all they have is a face— this can give them a lead. And I think that's valid. I mean, they there's also a downside of that if they just go with that lead and and really assume that the person surfaced by a facial recognition algorithm is their offender. And there have been a number of mistaken arrests at this point because of that. Like the police did not do enough investigating beyond the face match. Um, Those stories are Harrowing. They're they're There's horrible. One, I feel like did you have one in the Times that was not even in the book? Yeah. A more recent one. The most recent story is a woman named Portia Rudruff, eight months pregnant. Police show up at her door to arrest her for carjacking and robbery that had been committed two weeks earlier by a person who was not pregnant, and she ended up going to jail for the day. You know, getting charged, had to go to the hospital as soon as she was released because she was so stressed out by the arrest. So it can be a valuable tool, but it can also lead police astray. So so even when it is used well uh, or used for a good reason, there's still downsides. So I try to balance that. Like there are benefits, there are downsides. I can imagine a world in which we all have this technology on our phones because, and I don't know about you, but there's many times I could imagine using something like this for something as banal as, you know, you're at a work conference and you're introduced to somebody that you should already know and you don't want to ask their name and you could just quickly, you know, take a photo, find out who they are and not have that kind of embarrassing, sorry that I forgot you. Yeah. Um, but there's also so many chilling ways it can be used. I There's a couple of, uh, there are many people that are opposed to the use of facial recognition. They say, 
you know, whether it works or whether it doesn't, it shouldn't exist. It's like nuclear weapons. It's just too dangerous to be out there. I think it's going to be part of our lives. And the question right now is how widespread do we want it to be? How many people should have access to it? Um, what are the restrictions going to be? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I try to acknowledge that this might be just a way that privacy changes, that maybe we'll live in a world where you just don't have this kind of anonymity. Uh, I often think of, I remember in my early days reporting on privacy, I don't know if you got this, but there was a tech company that used to circulate an article about caller ID. There was a time with with our phones, when somebody called you, all you saw was a number and you didn't know who the person was until yeah. you picked up. And then caller ID was introduced. It's amazing you have to explain yeah. that to uh, people. <laughs> to but the, it, young, the young listeners <laughs> on the podcast. The old phones, they didn't tell you anything about who was calling. And so caller ID was introduced and it would tell you who the person was before you picked up so you could decide whether to pick up or not. And so there was a technology company that circulated this article about privacy advocates being really opposed to caller ID, that you should have the right to call people without them knowing who you were. And they were they were circulating this to say, hey, notions of privacy change a lot. And, you know, you know, now if somebody calls you on a block number, you don't know who they are. That's the intrusive <laughs> thing. Like you don't want to pick up. And so I do kind of wonder if we'll have a flip like that when it comes to our faces, that there'll be a time when the idea that you can't search this person's face in a bar to make sure they are who they really say they are will be the thing that's seen as the harm. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, because it's, yeah, anyways, as documented in the book, there's just so many chilling uses. I think the the best example is Madison Square Garden deciding oh, that they don't want lawyers who work at firms that have sued them to come in anymore. And so, yeah, so when lawyers, that, thousands of lawyers that work at something like 90 firms just get turned away at the door and told, you can't come to a Knicks game, you can't come to a Mariah Carey concert until your firm drops its suit. And I could just see that really spreading and just kind of this new era of discrimination where you write a bad Yelp review of a business and the next time you go there, uh, they don't let you in or, you know, they spit in your soup and you don't know about it. The lawyer's one seemed funny also because it's it's a little bit self-defeating. Like if you own a big venue, like thousands of law partners are probably the people that you want to uh, come to, whether their law firm has sued you or not, they have the money to yes. come rent the box or whatever. whatever. So, and if you're um, trying to discourage litigation, you maybe don't want to ban a bunch of lawyers because <laughs> you know they're going to come after you in court. But that's something I wonder about sort of the arc of your career and, the, and this particular topic because I'm sure, you know, you've heard even, I've written about it much less, but you hear all the same arguments over and over again from people and they say, uh, well, if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. Or it's inevitable anyway, so we want to try to do it this way that's better than the bad people would do if we try to contain it. You know, the arguments kind of like, they repeat, and then the phenomenon repeats that a thing that people would never do, or they think they would never do, five years later, they're doing it. They're sharing their photos, they're doing this, they're doing that. And how does that feel in terms of covering it? Do you ever kind of... Uh, despair is too strong a word, but do, does it get to you that the way this goes often is that you raise an alarm and maybe some marginal changes are made, but the thing happens anyway? I think the marginal changes are important. Mm. And I think that is where the victories are. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I often do feel like what my work is doing is 
preparing people for the way the world is going to change. And with something like facial recognition technology, that's really important because if the world is changing such that every photo of you taken that's uploaded is going to be findable, it's going to change the decisions that you make. And so like something I'm starting to hear about is people who created OnlyFans accounts during the pandemic, which is kind of like a risque, you know, online work was a way to make money when people didn't have jobs and that they kind of assumed if they didn't have their real name on those accounts, they wouldn't be associated with their identity. And now I'm hearing that those people are are starting to find that those accounts are being associated with them by people who are doing facial recognition searches. And so, so yeah, so part of this is just making sure that information is distributed to all so they can be prepared for it. Or if you get arrested for something and you just, you know that you had nothing to do with the crime, maybe you should know that police are using facial recognition technology and kind of mm-hmm. help you do your defense. But one of the themes of the book that I think is reassuring is that privacy laws work. The greatest example is uh, Illinois passed this law, the Biometric Information Privacy Act, giving people rights to their, you know, face prints, voice prints, fingerprints, uh, you know, biometric identifiers that companies can't use it without their consent. This law got passed in 2008, really a prescient <laughs> law. Uh, and the book explains how it is that they thought of this kind of before most of the rest of the country. But this means that people in Illinois have better protection for their faces than the rest of us. You know, something like Clearview is not allowed there. And it's it's interesting because uh, Madison Square Garden, they have a venue in Chicago. They have a theater there. And they can't use their facial recognition technology there. They can't bar lawyers with face recognition in Chicago because you're not allowed to do that. You can't use people's face prints without their consent. Mm-hmm. And so we can make laws that will make a difference. And it, it has happened. Um, Europe, too, has stronger privacy laws uh, than the United States. And they've said that what Clearview built was illegal. And Clearview has stopped doing business in Europe because of that. So so we can we can shape the future that we want. And I think with facial recognition technology specifically, we're still in a place where we can do that. And so that's where I, I feel like the book matters right now. We don't, it's not inevitable that we all have a Clearview AI app on our phone, but it is likely to happen if we we don't do something to avert it. I feel like this comes up in the book. You properly credit other people who are reporting on this topic. But, I mean, you you owned this story. This story, you broke this story. Clearview AI is your story. But then, like, some other great tech reporters, including Ryan Mack, who was at BuzzFeed News and is now at The Times, started breaking parts of it. Like, he, all the police departments that were using it and got this data about Clearview AI. And... What's your, I mean, now he's your colleague, but like, what's your relationship to like other reporters kind of like eating away at a story that you so fully own? Yeah. I mean, in a, in a way it's awesome. You're like, wow, I did this story that made such a difference that everyone else is chasing it. And yeah, the BuzzFeed team did great reporting. Huffington Post did great reporting. I mean, there was such great reporting that was coming from all over the place. My favorites were 
local reporters who now were aware of Clearview AI and started doing public records requests to their local law enforcement agencies. And so I just, it was like, I felt like Johnny Appleseed just kind of like (laughs) throwing my seeds out to the world. I mean, yeah, there were reports in Australia. It was like all over the place. I would have to say it was incredible to see that wave of of coverage um, because I thought it was important for people to know how the technology was getting used. Certainly jealousy factor to see some big scoops BuzzFeed. Um, BuzzFeeds had this really great get where they got access to a list of customers that Clearview AI had, and they built this incredible database, which was really helpful for my reporting, (laughs) of everybody who had used it and how many searches they had run approximately at the time that BuzzFeed got the information. So it was a mix of jealousy and admiration for, (laughs) for colleagues getting great stories, but it was also helpful, especially as I was doing the book and putting it all together to have all these resources of people at the national publications, but also a lot of local journalists who did really, really great work. This is both about facial recognition, but also just all of your reporting. I mean, you've put yourself in the middle of these situations. You've given up your own privacy for our sake in some ways, including having your face eventually was run by by Clearview. Like, you did have them run your face. Several uh, times, actually, yeah. <laughs> and so... Do you ever have this impulse? I have this impulse, and maybe many people do, that, uh, you know what? You know what I'd love to do is just, like, flick all these switches off. Like, just leave it all. Like, Facebook, Instagram, just turn them all off. Or either that or for my kids, just turn it all off for them. Do you do you have that impulse? And, like, how does that manifest in your life, given all the reporting that you've done on this? Gosh. Um... Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I often think about the story I did about getting away from the technology giants. And one of the best things that I did during that almost two-month period was I had to give up, because I was giving up Google and Apple, I had to get rid of my smartphone. And so I went back to using like an old Nokia, like one of those little (laughs) orange bricks of a phone. And it was such a relief to my brain to turn off the internet, you know, unless I was sitting in front of a computer. And it it broke this kind of habit I had of waking up every morning. And, you know, first thing you do is the thumb lap on your phone and looking at my phone the last thing before I went to bed, because when you have just one of those old cell phones, all it does is text. And yeah, I mean, I, I do sometimes feel overwhelmed thinking about how connected we all are. And um, I thought about this in the context of the book because of the nature of privacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a lot of privacy scholars say that privacy is a novel concept and that, you know, in in the before times when we all lived in like very small villages with a very small number of people, you knew everyone and they knew everything going on in your life. And that privacy really arose through urbanization and moving to big cities where you can be anonymous. And sometimes I feel like technology is taking us back to this small town feel, except we're in this small town of billions of people. And it just kind of can feel, yeah, just overwhelming. I just wonder about the extent to which our brains can adapt to this much stimulation. So yeah, so (laughs) 
Uh, so yeah, I think about it a lot, and and we we talk about the limits that need to be put on technology to kind of protect society, but. I think all of us are thinking more and more about the limits we need to put on technology in our own lives to just live <laughs> and be healthy and fulfilled and be good role models for our children and not have them frustrated because you're always <laughs> looking at your phone. <laughs> well, I hope you don't shut it all off because I'm counting on you to keep reporting on this <laughs> uh, so that the rest of us can possibly figure out what we need to, to shut down. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This is amazing. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to Kashmir Hill. Her book is out now. It's called Your Face Belongs to Us. Our show this week was edited by Jackie Sajiko. Our show notes were from Megan Valley. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to Vox for partnering with us on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we will see you next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.